Father, thanks so much for who you are. Thanks for your word. We very consciously take a moment and um, are, are really grateful that we have a problem that we have to make too many announcements. There's life in our church that we have to make uh, a bunch of announcements. But at the same time, we want to stop and say, now we're going to enter into acknowledging that you spoke and you speak. And now we're going to read those words in which you, you spoke to us and continue to speak to us. Help us understand them. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, during the four weeks of this Advent, we are going to study the doctrine of adoption. Now, we've touched on it a little bit as we went through Proverbs at the end, but we are going to talk about the doctrine of adoption intentionally. And the key text we are going to use for all of our Advent series, except for today, which I'll explain in a moment, is Romans 8, what Allison came up and read, Romans 8, 14 through 17, which says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those verses right there are packed with theological richness, and we want to unpack those verses. But before we get there, I want to actually go to the end of Romans 8 and talk about some things, because here's our overview for the four weeks. You can just put them all four up if you want to. Um, We're going to go, well, I can just tell you if you don't have it, the list. We're going to go, we are adopted first. We're going to understand who we've been adopted by. So that's today. Before we get to our text, I want to go through who we've been adopted by. Then, I think they're on the screen, yes, from being adopted by, we're going to go to that uh, we've been adopted from, being adopted from our life before, what that looks like. Then ultimately, uh, uh, who we've, what we've been adopted for, and then ultimately adopted to, which we'll touch on Christmas Eve, that, that Sunday morning, okay? So let's, let's get to work. Uh, we've got a lot of text to cover. We're going to go Romans, you're already there, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And um, here's what I want to say. We're, what we're going to read in this text are some questions, okay? Now, the reason we're starting with who you've been adopted by is before I can give you a a definition of what adoption is, here's the reality, y'all. Some of you need to reorient what you know to be true about family. Some of you need to reorient what you know to be true about a father. Right, so let me give you a little bit of background. So I, uh, some of you already know some of my story, but maybe you don't. Um, I grew up homeless, poor. Both my parents were drug addicts, not in a Christian home at all. Um, I spent a lot of uh, nights sleeping on other people's, um, I call them stoops. We argued about this this week, but apparently they're called porches. I don't know if anybody calls porches stoops, but a whole nother time. I can, I can debate you afterwards. So, so we, we slept there in cars. It was just that whole deal, right? Um, and, 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 and there's this weird thing that takes place as, as I become a Christian, I'm eventually brought in. So I go through the foster care system in in junior high and I'm eventually officially adopted, um, to them, but not by the state, by a family, a family brings me in, in high school. Okay. And it's crazy, right? Because the way that I understood a father was not the way that I was experiencing a father. My whole paradigm had to be completely reoriented y'all. Like it was so like, um, I remember the first night we sat down as a family, when I got adopted, we sat down as a family and ate dinner. And I was like, what, what are we doing right now? I'm not even kidding. I was like, why are we sitting together? We could be watching TV right now. What are you doing? Okay. 
Like, it was just a paradigm shift. So my dad is a, a drug addict, and, and, and he's lazy, and I'm introduced into this family where this man wakes up before everyone else. He goes to sleep after everyone else. He works insane hours. He works hard for us. He cares for us. The mom is making me do my homework, okay? Like, it was a paradigm shift. What I understood about family was not the reality in which I was adopted into, and so for us to get there, for us to, to reorient our mind, man, some of you grew up in really good homes. To God be the glory for that. That's his grace to you. Some of you grew up in, in decent homes, but you had terrible dad, a terrible dad or a terrible mom. But like, it wasn't bad. Like, you weren't homeless. What, whatever it is, our goal today is to go biblically before we define adoption, you know, all, everything that we want to get in at adoption. What's this family like? What's the Bible tell us this dad is like? What kind of patriarch is he? That's a, those are important questions to ask. And, and this is exactly um, what, what takes place in, in uh, 31 through 39. So there's these six questions. Paul sets up these questions um, ultimately to be rhetorical. They're, they're, they're set up to be asked these questions with obvious answers. But we're going to answer them, okay? But here's what we're going to do. Um, these questions are set up in such a way to tell us truths about where we are before God. But we're going to take these questions and say, if that's true, then what's that say about God? Meaning, if um, you have the Myers boys running around, Corbin and Titus, and someone goes, dude, those Myers boys are not taken care of. Well, that says more about Candace and I than it does them, doesn't it? Or if you look at the Myers kids and go, man, they're, they're super just like... They're not behaved, they're not disciplined, they're not, like, it's just all bad. Well, well, that says more about Candace and I than it does our children. Or the opposite, right? It, which is what we hear a lot. They're super disciplined, perfectly, they, they love Jesus. How are they, like, perfect, it's just crazy, all the stuff I hear. Um, right? So if you hear that side, that says more about Candace and I than it does them also. So what we're going to do is we're going to see this, and it's telling truths about where we are, but what that says about God is crazy, okay? So reorienting around our minds, it tells who we've been adopted by, what kind of family this is. Let's go at these rhetorical questions. The first one is this, and it's a good setup for us in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things, okay? We didn't, this text didn't just fall out of the sky. It's, it's within another broader context, which is Romans 8 and ultimately uh, the book of Romans, right? Which finds itself in the New Testament, which is in the Bible. So it, it's pocketing itself in this. In this section... Um, these things is, is honestly debated, and, and we don't even know exactly what these things he could be talking about. He could be talking about the, the five verses before we just got here, uh, which is that we ultimately, we've been foreknown, predestined, all the way to, to glorified. He could be talking about all of Romans 8, and to be honest with you, with you I, which I don't think is the case, uh, he could be talking about the whole book of Romans. But, but I think he's ultimately talking about what should we say to these things. Uh, Paul makes a turn in Romans 8 talking about how there's no condemnation uh, in Jesus. There's no condemnation in him. And I think that's ultimately what he's going to be asking these questions about. What shall we say to these things? Now hear me. They're rhetorical. They're not meant to be answered. Okay? But when we read these things, I can't but help have like a doxological, a, a worshipful response to them. So we're going to answer them. Let, let's answer them. Here, here's the first questions he asks after saying, what shall we say to these things? You ready? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on your side, who stands a chance against you? Now, the, the obvious answer the is no one, right? 
but, but I, I need you to get there because why is that true? Like, if asked, if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's do this. Let's do this with all these verses in this question. Let's look at God's resume. So I remember looking at John, the, the father who adopted me, and I asked my buddy Kyle, who, who is uh, now, we, my kids call him Uncle Kyle. I remember asking Kyle, who is their son, going, has John always been like this? As long as I've known him. He's a disciplined dude. He's like caring. It's always the way he's been. He's always acted like this. Like, let me know, has, has John, or is he just acting like this around me? No, he's always been like this. So let, let's do this. Um, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's ask our brothers and sisters in the past that question. If God has been for you, Abraham, who can stand against you? No one. Like, no, let, let, let's do it. So, so Pharaoh, Pharaoh, hey, if God was for Moses and the Israelites, who, who could stand against them? A nobody. Exodus 3, through, uh, 3 uh, chapter 3 through chapter 15. Pharaoh experiences this firsthand. Elijah at this moment, if God is against him, Nobody can stand against him. David, in his strength, at one moment, you ask Gideon, if God is for you, who can be against you? Gideon has 22,000 soldiers. And God says, no, 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 no. And I quote, that's too many. Bring it down to 300. And with 300 soldiers, he wins. If God is for you, no one can stand against you. Listen, let's just go back to the beginning of the Bible. The dude created gravity. Like the molecules that are in your body. That was his idea. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, though morbid, is uh, Job 34, 15 and 16. If the Lord should choose to set his mind upon it and withdraw his spirit from the earth, all man would instantly return to dust. So Jehovah God, Yahweh's putting his gloves on, whoever he wants to battle, and he goes, you know what? I don't want to be with you anymore. And he just returns to dust. Who has a chance against that? No one. No one. No one stands a chance. So, so what kind of family have we been brought into? Check it out. Our father is powerful. He's powerful. He is mighty. Oh, he is so, I mean, we have yet to search the galaxies upon galaxies that he's created. We've yet to understand that beyond the atoms and the, the molecules within us, we've to, we can't get there yet. It, it, David says it perfectly. This knowledge is too wonderful for us. Hear me. He is mighty. He is powerful. Our brothers and sisters knew this. Moses knew this. Gideon knew this. Elijah knew this. Like, the story with Elijah is crazy because at one moment, Elijah goes, rain, stop, because God tells him to stop. And then the next chapter, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, he literally has a battle with another god, these other prophets. And the story ends with fire coming from heaven. Who stands a chance of fire coming from heaven? No one. So if God is for you, and you're in this family, believer, no one has a chance. That's the answer. But he doesn't end there. Look at it. The next question. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he makes a statement, first statement. Look, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then the question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His statement is, he gave his son away. How will he not give you anything else? 
So if you can imagine, okay, we got a family of five, this mom and dad, three kids, they're in, let's say, Iowa. They decide they want to go to Florida to Disney World, okay? So they got to spend about three, $4,000 on plane tickets. They fly themselves to Florida. They get some hotels. It costs about two grand for the three, three to four-day trip to, to stay in there. Uh, they spend about $1,000 on food. They're ready. They're ready for this trip. They want to go to Disneyland, super, all kinds of jacked, right? They're about five, $6,000 deep already. They get in the car from the hotel to drive to Disney World. As they get there, the dad sees that the parking is $20, which if you've been to amusement park, that's cheap. He gets to the, the, the uh, parking lot, sees that it's $20, goes, $20? Oh, heck no. We're out. Let's go back to Iowa. Bro, you're already like six grand deep. What is $20? What's crazy about the cross is it is from the perspective of the sun, and it brings glory to the sun. But any dad knows if somebody rolls in the house and has to shoot me or my son, it's me all day. What does this say about the father that he gives his son? He's generous. Look at his resume. His people were thirsty. Water comes from a rock. His people were hungry. He supplies bread from the sky with birds. He's generous. He provides a ram for Abraham. In the moments of need, God has always been there. Ask him. Ask Job. Ask David. Check it out. I'm not putting myself in that category, but look at me. Ask me. Ask me. And I come from nothing. I come from sleeping in cars, homeless, with drug addict parents. Two months ago, I adopted a girl. Ask me how generous he is. First five, cor- first five cars I ever owned were all given to me. Brought into a family that I deserved none of it given to me. God, at his core, is not just powerful in a hoarding type way. But here's the second thing you can know about this family. He's generous. He doesn't just have, he gives. He is so powerful and he generously shares it with you. That's the family that you've been adopted into. But he ain't done. Listen to this. Verse 33 and 34 are going to go together. So I'm going to read them and we're going to break them down a little bit because I think it's important. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And then he says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? So verse 33 makes this statement. Who shall bring any charge against against God's elect? I want you to look at that word charge there because it's only used here um, and then it's used six more times in the Bible, all in the book of Acts from chapters 21 on. Okay? Now, the reason that's important is Paul really likes this word. Now, if you remember, we were just in the book of Acts. What happened from chapters 21 on was Paul was constantly standing before the courts. So Paul uses this word all the time as he stands before judges. So the picture is meant to insinuate you're standing there and the devil, yourself, your friends, your family, whoever it is, is going, wait, wait, you screwed up. You're guilty. And and who can bring a charge against God's elect? He uses our electedness, if you you can see it here, who can bring a a charge against God's elect in, in, uh, in representing or at least getting us off the hook and using this language? It is God who justifies. So this is what 
uh, is interesting about justifies there, um, and I'm not trying to be all fancy here, but justifies is a participle in Greek. So um, it has far more to do, you can add ing to any participle. It's he is justifying. So who can condemn in this moment? You, you did it. You're wrong. You know you're wrong. I know I'm wrong. I know I've sinned over and over and over again. So we, we should be condemned. We are found guilty. And yet, who can bring a charge? Nothing sticks. So this is what's crazy about this. Um, think of uh, you parents. Think when you go into mama bear or like daddy bear mode. Think of that moment when someone comes up and they say, your kid did this. Now immediately like, let's go. Right? Because you want to defend. And this is exactly what God does. He says, no, no, you're bringing a charge against my son or daughter, but I'm the one who's justifying them. Now, that would not be fair at all because that, 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 that isn't right that he would say, well, they did something wrong. I'm just letting them off the hook. But well, here's what's crazy. The reason you're not condemned, the answer is found in the text. Here's what happens. Look at verse 34. Uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right, hand of God, or the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when he goes, no, 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 they're not guilty. Here's why I died for them. But, but I didn't just die to get them off the hook. More than that, I beat death. Now, after doing that, completing that, any guilt you want to bring or any charges you want to bring, now I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father And I am, this is important, interceding. Not interceded, interceding. Over and over. No, no, they did it. Yeah, I I covered that. Yeah, yeah, I know they, I got that one too. Yeah, I know they keep doing it, but but I covered it. Over and over and over. So this is is what's amazing about this. Um, You want to be in this family, there's no room for swag. You want to be in this family, There's not a recognition that you were born into it by birth. You grew up in a church and you've got it all right. What's crazy is looking at God's resume, it's been the opposite. Moses doesn't go to the promised land because he doubts. Elijah, the guy who brought fire from the sky, complains and moans all through 1 Kings. Gideon, what you end up finding about Gideon and Judges is after he does this amazing thing, he refuses to be king, he becomes narcissistic and greedy. David... He ends up having a man killed and commits adultery. No, no, no. God's story is, you're brought into this family, and check it out, you're right, you don't deserve it. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, and that he rose from the dead, and now that he sits at the right hand of the Father, it's almost like a lens. God the Father looks at you through him. You are righteous because of what he has done. There's no room for swag. We come humbly. Man, my story is so this. Like, as I get adopted into this family, there's just a recollection that, like, I'm bringing zero things to the table. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I decided I wanted to write John and Nancy a poem. And I write them uh, this poem. It was around this flower, trying to be super artsy. And uh, I write them, to, I, I put my heart into this thing. Well, two years ago, uh, they still had it up in this really, this place in the house where everyone can see it. And I haven't read it in a long time, so I read it. And it's just garbage. Just the, just the worst, okay? And I remember putting my heart into this thing. Like, not only is the poem bad, but like grammatically it's terrible. I'm a terrible speller at 32. You can imagine at 17. Like, it's all bad, right? <laughs> and here I am, brought into this family, 
financially have to make adjustments. Rooms have to make adjustments. Food has to make adjustments. Uh, Like the way that they run their life all has to be adjusted around me. And the best I can give you is a crappy poem. Listen, I didn't bring anything into that family. I was, I was brought in because they cared, because they loved. It was not because of me. So, so hear me when I say this. You've been brought into a family, the family of God, who is a just forgiver. He accepts you because he did what he did. It is his covenant. You don't got to bring anything. Bring your brokenness. He's got you. He's not done, though, still. Um, in 35, he asks these questions again, two questions. And then what's great about 35 is he ends up answering them. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And he goes on to answer this, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I want to break down a bunch of this stuff, but there's two statements in here that I want to uh, get at. The first one is this, what we put on coffee mugs and t-shirts. It's that you're more than a conqueror, okay? Well, you understand what's going on here. So uh, it's that more than a conqueror is one Greek word. It's huponikio. It's, um, nikio is a word for conquer, and hupo is where we get our word hyper from. Quite literally translated, it's hyper conquer or beyond a conquer. And Piper makes a great statement when he talks about why we're beyond a conquer with these things. Because as we look at the list, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, as you look at all these things, I love Piper's statement. He says, we are not only conquerors to these things in Jesus, but they serve us. The reason you can look at persecution and go, no, no, it's conquered, but it also beyond it, you being more than a conqueror is the fact that now that serves you. So as a believer, this is crazy, as a believer, heartache poverty, pain, and the list goes on. Now suddenly, as a believer, that doesn't separate you from Christ. It's crazy. It serves as a means to draw you into Christ. No, no, no. Like brokenness and, and, and him leaving you or her leaving you or, or the loss of that life, that pain that you feel as a believer makes you press into Jesus. You don't just conquer those things. You're more than a conqueror. You use that to get closer to Christ. But, but here's what's crazy. In that love statement, you can look at your Bibles. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is what you're drawing back into, right? The love of Christ because you're more than a conqueror. And it gives us this list. Um, what's interesting about this statement, love, there in this noun, um, go back to like God is powerful. God's power can exist autonomous from you right? So, um, meaning God can be powerful and it doesn't have to be in your direction or for your protection. He is just powerful. And this is true for his love. We can read this and go, well, the love of Christ just exists almost autonomously. And I don't think anybody would disagree with this. It's a noun. Christ's love is. That doesn't mean he loves you. But what's crazy about 37, it doesn't let you get off like that. Look at it. From 35, it says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then at the end of 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. He takes love as a noun in existing, and he turns it into a verb in your direction. So, so if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, look at me. Yes, you've been brought into a family of power. 
you've been brought into a family where the God is, he is all powerful. He's a just forgiver. He is generous. I need you to hear me say this, okay? He loves you. No, no, no. Listen to me. He loves you. He doesn't just love. That love doesn't just exist. It's in a direction. His love is towards us. It's towards you. Do you understand? Like my misrepresentation of understanding like what love is, right? So my, man, I think my dad loves me 15 years old. I think he does, but it feels like he cares about meth more. But but I, I really do. I think he loves me, but he's trapped in this disease and he maybe feels like joy is found in that, pleasure is found in that. But, but I, I think his love exists. I just don't know if it exists towards me. And then I'm brought into this family where I see action after action after action of displayed love towards me. And I can't get my mind around it. Right? It's, it's, it's this idea that like a, a kid is adopted and, and he's on adoption day. He gets these papers. I'm adopted. I'm adopted. Seven-year-old kid running around, keeps his adoption papers in the back of his pocket, shows his friends, look, I'm adopted. He goes everywhere. He goes, I'm adopted. To his classmates, I'm adopted. At, at some point after two, three years of this, he goes, dude, those papers are cool, but, but what's it like? Like, yeah, you've been accepted by Christ. Yes, legally, there is no charge against you. But do you hear this? The family that you've been adopted in wants you. It's not just abstract love. You haven't just been adopted. You relying on those papers, man, is, you're missing it. You're missing if you're relying on justification. If communion is not the name of the game, you're missing it. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Maybe your dad didn't love you. I don't care. He loves you. Maybe your mom didn't love you. He loves you. Maybe you don't love yourself. He loves you. Unless you think that love can be dismissed because some of you experienced that, haven't you? Like you feel like you get it wrong. Your parents, I, I, I know they love me, but I don't feel like they love me. Maybe like, like in and out of different situations where you feel like that love was taken a lot. So, so in this family, if there's love, Here's what I want you to hear uh, in, in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, you ready, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not just circumstantial. It's not just that disease might try to take or pain might try to take. He's, though not giving an exhaustive list, I think intentionally trying to express exhaustiveness. In this moment, he's trying to say, listen to me, it's not just this momentary, you'll know that I love you, but there's nothing ever, not here and not ever, that will be able to separate you from me. We're in this together, in this family, and man, did I need to know this, did I need to learn this, and I need you to hear this there is security. He won't let go. You remember how powerful he is? He ain't letting go of you. You are secure. That love ain't going away. Look at that list. Think of some of these things. Death? Look, homie, you die. That's it. That ain't separating you from the love of Christ. Look, look at this list. Angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation in case we missed it. You're secure. He's got you. 
I'm in the home, first night. It just happened to be a coincidence. The family brought in, they had crab. I was like, okay, I don't know where we're at right now, Ritz-Carlton stuff. Um, obviously, we, had, we didn't have, we had mac and cheese a lot of those nights too, but being adopted in. But the first night, they were celebrating some birthdays and they had crab. And I remember pocketing rolls, taking some crab, because I wasn't secure. I don't know if this gig's going to last forever. My kids call them grandma and grandpa. They ain't going anywhere. And God has provided a family for you to be secure. He is powerful and you are secure. So hear me. Who have we been adopted by? What should we reorient our mind around? You've been adopted into a family where the patriarch is powerful. You've been adopted into a family where that patriarch is generous. That God is willing to give and give and give. He is fair and he is just. You hear me? You track with me on that? He loves man and he doesn't just love, he loves you. And in that, you are secure. There's nothing coming your way, his way that surprises him. You are secure. So how I want to finish is um, uh, I want to read something from Charles Spurgeon. And uh, I know I read from him quite a lot, but there's something interesting about uh, Spurgeon is, um, and this isn't a segue to adoption. We're going to talk about a lot of the ways that this is important in understanding adoption in weeks two and three is probably the most predominant. But Spurgeon is known as the prince of preachers, right? So he's known for how many messages. For, there was a period of time, about a 10-year period, where he literally wrote a message every single day, right? Um, and he's just, that's what he's known for. But what what's, what's sucks about that is the lesser part of knowing what he what he's, uh, should be known for is he looked at the orphan crisis in London and he said, this is not okay. And there's no one who comes close to the amount of orphanages that this guy put up. No one that comes close. I mean, his popularity is so huge that at one moment, um, they're crammed into a symphony hall because the tabernacle for them wasn't built yet. There's too many people coming on Sundays. And this huge hall that was used for symphonies for London, somebody wants room, so they yell, fire! And people, they go out, a few people die, Spurgeon goes into depression. The reason I share that is that's how many people. His popularity was huge. And his heart, yet all the while, was a recognition for the orphan. Okay? And, and as we get into what we've been adopted to, I want you to know that, because I'm going to read this. Um, and I, he's not coming from some ethereal place. He's not just going, yeah, yeah, this is true. No, no, he knows the plight of what it means to be brought into a family that you have not known, deserved, or understand. He knows what that's like. And to do it, I want to go back to verse 31 and answer the question, what then shall we say to these things? This is what Spurgeon would say to that, and this is what I'll leave you with. Now go away, heirs of heaven, with light feet and with joy in your countenance, saying, you know that you are, are his children and that he loves you and will not cast you away. Believe that to his chest he now presses you, that his heart is full of love to you. Believe that he will provide for you, protect you, sustain you, and that he will at last bring you to a glad inheritance when you shall have perfected the years of your pilgrimage and shall be ripe for bliss. You hear that last line? He will provide for you, protect you, sustain you, and that he will at last bring you to a glad inheritance. And that day we see him face to face, right? When you shall have perfected the years of your pilgrimage. We're here right now. We don't see him, but 4 Peter 1.9 says we've received the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. We're received the, at the end of your pilgrimage and shall be ripe for bliss. He's got you, man. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. We're grateful for an opportunity to study Romans chapter 8 and to spend all of Advent going through verses 14 through 17. Um, But I know I'm glad we got to kind of talk through what it even means to look at the family we've been adopted by, that you truly are a good father, that you truly are willing to give all good things. As James tells us, you give good gifts, comes down from the father of lights. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for securing that on the cross. Thank you for inviting us into the family as a a fellow heir with you. We love you. We're grateful for what you've brought us into, no matter where we come from. In Jesus' name, amen.